Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 131 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday morning. It's August 6th, 2019. I am still Bobby Chesney. I'm still Steve Vladek, and the Mets are two and a half games out of the wild card. And above 500. Oh, yeah, that too. Yeah, for the first time since, I think, what, May, May 28th? This is a very enjoyable moment for, for us Mets but fans. But not for Karen. Karen is so disappointed. Like, last night, I was actually watching the I was going to say, games. this is pulling you into watching the this games. This is pulling me into it? watching the games. And Karen is just, Karen is, like, beside herself with disappointment. Because you have all the spare time you can you could put into watching uh, long baseball games. I mean, I don't. But, like, my, you know, my MO back before we had, you know, kids and a family and stuff was to work in front of baseball games because you can sort of look up yeah, and then, you know, go right. back to work. <laughs> because the action is once every you know right. 45 the problem seconds. is i'm depriving karen of opportunities to watch shows together uh have you have you thought about uh two screens side by side you with the sound off mm-hmm. and and so there's something actually you know fun to watch i on. think i could handle that i'm not sure you know <laughs> I, I, <laughs> so, so so i i karen and i have different approaches to multitasking like i think i'm a really good multitasker and i'm not and karen knows she's not well, a good multitasker. Every, everybody who thinks they're a good multitasker is probably wrong about yep, it that's right uh, including me. So, yay. yay. Uh, so, I don't mean to be too jovial because obviously the, right, a serious, the lead uh, story that context. we want to talk about today is, is pretty serious. The two shootings over the weekend, especially, I mean, uh, to me, there's, there, there are features of the El Paso shooting that I find even more, I think, disturbing and horrifying. Not that any mass shooting isn't my, my limited understanding, and I've, I've not done the latest digging on this, I, my understanding in Ohio, there's still a question about motive, whereas... Yeah. The El Paso scenario, it's it's clear, very clear what was going on there, and it's led us to want to devote most of our conversation today to the topic of domestic terrorism. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the El Paso horror has uh, spurred a lot of debate on many dimensions. We, we're certainly not purporting to talk about all of them. No. But the particular angle that, that is uh, pertinent for us is... Uh, an ongoing conversation we've engaged in several times on this show. Too many times. Yeah. Every time this comes up, the question arises, uh, what is the legal framework for domestic terrorism? What do we even mean by distinguishing domestic from foreign terrorism? Do we need, and this is the recurring issue, do we need some sort of new domestic terrorism laws? That's primarily what we're going to talk about, although I imagine we'll get into some other aspects of the larger topic as well. But that's why this will be more El Paso focused. It may turn out that the Ohio, the Dayton shooting is is similar, but I don't know that we know that yet. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think, the, and there's just this broader conversation, like every time this happens, we have this national debate that lasts for about a week. Um, and I just, you know, it would, be, it would be nice for the debate to actually sustain itself maybe a little longer this time. But well, there's a larger point there about how the intersection of, of what gets discussed in the most prominent media sources, whether they be traditional and mainstream or social media uh, trending things, yeah. uh, how does that relate to what Congress will pay attention to, right. what the White House pays attention yep. to? How does it translate into momentum that actually turns into action um, in an environment in which the, the pressure that can be mounted through sustained public attention uh, it gets overridden and diverted into something else by the next day's, you know, sort of news story. Above all, during the age of Trump. Where that's well, I was going to say, and in which the president's saying, yes, um, I, I'll support background checks as long as we tie it to immigration reform. Because, you know, the way to respond to a mass shooting targeting immigrants is aggressive, hostile immigration reform legislation. So I guess one question, well, we can start going down the rabbit hole. Let's well, mention, well, are we well, going to talk so, about anything else? So today? we'll get there. So so I think the bulk of our of our substantive of our of our non-frivolous section um, is going to be that. I do want to mention, because I think this is actually very important, um, a cert petition that the Solicitor General filed yesterday. Um, happy anniversary, by the way, Mom and Dad, 46 years yesterday. Oh, um, oh I thought that was in their cert petition. Very yeah, nice. That would be very cool. If the SG, <laughs> a, if nice the SG gave my parents a shout-out for their anniversary in the cert petition, that would be weird. Um, <laughs> so um, this is a cert petition in a case. I, I'm going to butcher the name. I'm going to try it anyways. Department of Homeland Security. I know that's hard to say. Um, versus Therasia Jim. Uh, okay. I have no. I'm sure that's not even close. It's a All Sri right. Lankan name, and I apologize. Right. You, know, you, for, made, you made an effort. Um, but the, this is a case we've actually talked about before. This is the Ninth Circuit case about whether undocumented immigrants who are subject to what's called expedited removal um, are enti- have a constitutional right to judicial review of asylum claims that might allow them to avoid expedited removal. And there's a circuit split, the third circuit. Just so I'm clear, you mean, so court review of the administrative asylum proceedings results. Correct. Right. So so expedited removal, part of what happens in expedited removal is you get incredibly sort of quick quick and dirty um, hearings, even if you have an asylum claim. 
question is, are you entitled to some kind of meaningful judicial review of the, you know, let's assume denial right. of the right. asylum so you claim? Can, can you appeal slash, what, is it collateral or appeal? Um, it's technically collateral, yeah. right, because of the way the statutes are. Yeah. So, so, yeah. Um, so the the Third Circuit, in a case we've talked about before called Castro versus Homeland Security back in 2016, had said the suspension clause does not even apply in these cases, um, distinguishing Boumediene, right, right which right. held that the suspension clause applies to non-citizen terrorism suspects with no connection to the U.S. held at Guantanamo. Right. It's a t- that, that's a tough one to it's distinguish. A tough distinction. Yeah. Uh, and the Ninth Circuit had disagreed, creating a circuit split. And yesterday, on the very last day that it could have filed for cert, the SG filed for cert in the Ninth Circuit case. Um, so we'll talk about that, too, because trying I think this is— Trying to get the same result the Third Circuit already gave them. Basically, yes. Yeah, trying um, to get that for the whole country. Nationally. Because yeah, right. um, the Third Circuit, you don't get that many expedited removal cases in the right. Third Circuit. You get a ton of them in the Ninth Circuit and here in the Fifth Circuit. Well, should we talk about that first and then pivot into the larger topic of uh, I mean, you El Paso? know, it's our show. Yeah, uh, this let's let's go around the room. Uh, any objections? Hearing, Hearing none. none. Seeing none. This, this is like my my first year teaching. I tell the story sometimes. Like the second week, I walked up to the classroom where I was teaching civil procedure, and all my students were outside, even though it was time for class. And I peeked in, and I saw that the the class before us was still going. And I looked around at the other students, and finally, one of them says to me, "You know, it's your job to go in there and kick oh. them out, right?" <laughs> and I was like. Not it. <laughs> exactly. You should have, you should have done that. Like, all right, egg. You know, ten points on the final to whoever's, whoever goes whoever goes and does out for me. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's do this first. So yeah. so we'll do this first, and then we'll get to yeah. The, we just teed it up. So. That's fine. Um. So so let me sort of provide some background. So, um, immigration law typically distinguishes between two kinds of of legal proceedings. Right. So there's the actual like a direct administrative appeal, say of a removal order. Um, which usually goes straight from the agency, right, the executive office of immigration review, to the, to, to the relevant right. geographic yeah. circuit. Right, um, skips the district court. Skips the district court, um, like most administrative law. Um, Congress, starting in 1996, but really aggressively in a statute called the Real ID Act of 2005, um, has sort of tweaked, oh, I'm sorry, and then the second, the second, and, and then failing that direct review, there's habeas, right? Habeas as a collateral remedy in cases where the direct review is inadequate. Yeah. Um, Congress, starting in 1996, tried very aggressively to eliminate the second route, the second part of that, the habeas part, um, in a series of provisions, first in the, in EDPA, the Anti-Terrorism Effective Death Penalty Act, and then in IRERA, the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act, um, basically trying to push almost all of these claims into the direct appeal. Um, and in a series of decisions, the circuits, and then in one or two cases, the Supreme Court, basically held that to avoid all of these messy constitutional questions, um, they read the 96 statute to actually not have done a good job of that. Um, so INS versus St. Sears, the sort of most famous Supreme Court case, where even though the statute, the section had literally said, elimination of custody review by habeas corpus, the court says, no, 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 that wasn't clear enough. So this is just like the way the court treated uh, the detainee treatment Exactly act so, in Hamdan. Tra- when Congress clearly was trying to pull back on habeas access yep. statutorily uh, for Guantanamo, and, con- and the court basically said, like, well, I don't know, you didn't really say the magic words, we're going we're gonna to act as if what yep. you really meant to do was only have that apply going forward. And, it was and, ridiculous. Well, so you say ridiculous. Um, <laughs> you know, I had a long fight with, with one of my students in my Fed courts class last semester about this. Um, it, it's ridiculous. It is a smart uh, student. I know. Um, I should hire her as my research assistant. Um, <laughs> the, um, and if you're listening, Rachel, well done. Um, the, you know, it, it, it is ridiculous in sort of a superficial sense. It is deeply institution preserving, right, in the sense that the Supreme Court is basically, you know, avoiding. It, it's it's a species of constitutional avoidance um, that the court is avoiding. And I, I think it's footnote 13 in St. Cyr where Justice Stevens says, you know, we've never even we've never even asked what the suspension clause protects, let alone tried to answer it, right, to have to do so here. So, you know, Congress, if you want us to do it, fine. You just have to be super clear. Yeah. Well, Congress it, has been super clear. I think they were super clear, but so, that's the, yeah. But, but, I mean, you know, with degrees of clarity notwithstanding, Congress got the message right. after St. Cyr. And so... Right. And lo- as with the Military Commissions Act, exactly they come so. back with later legislation and that's in the real immigration context and right. say, we really mean this. Right. And so if you actually go and look at the relevant provisions of 8 U.S.C. Section 1252, it, the language is literally like, notwithstanding any other provision of law, comma, including but not limited yeah. to the habeas statute, the All Writs Act, and any other statutory or non-statutory... Like we thought com- of everything we could think of. Basically. So please review this and be done with it. Right. This time they took Fed courts. Yes. <laughs> um, so so what that has meant is that there are contexts in which the Real ID Act's um, constriction 
of habeas, right, raises serious constitutional questions because uh, there are contexts in which the direct administrative appeal is highly circumscribed. Um, there, have, there have been some sort of circuit level cases about this, but the, the category of claims where this has been the most contentious has been in the context of um, undocumented immigrants who are subject to expedited removal. And the reason why that's so is because that's the category of folks in the immigration judicial review system where there's the strongest argument that they're not protected by the Constitution at all. Right. So if you think of all the different immigration scenarios, uh, all the different situations in which non-citizens can end up in the processes of immigration law, this is the one where their degree of claim to constitutional protection is the weakest. Uh, for now. So I want, but yeah. th this is an important caveat, though. So, so typically, right, historically, to be subject to expedited removal, you had to be picked up within a certain physical distance of a land border mm -hmm. um, and a, uh, within a minimal amount of time since you had surreptitiously entered the country. Right. So it wasn't just like, you know, if, you ha if there's an undocumented immigrant, you know, living here in Austin, they're not automatically subject to expedited removal by dint of being undocumented. Right. If you're far, if you're, if you get in far enough, if you if you were, in for long enough, that's right. The the territoriality of your presence begins in some sort of spectrumy way to seep a stronger claim to constitutional protection into you. Except that just about a week or two ago, um, the Department of Homeland Security published a notice of proposed rulemaking to radically expand the category of expedited removal. And so this is one of the things that's lurking in this case is you know as we're having this fight about whether undocumented immigrants subject to expedited removal are protected by the suspension clause, the Trump administration is trying to radically expand the category of who counts as an as as subject to expedited removal. Probably a, a bad move by DHS's part vis-a-vis -vis this this litigation. Well, I think this is I think this is one arm not this is one hand. Oh, not clearly, talking to no the question. Other. I mean, it, to think of it this way, um, there there's something certainly to the idea that a person who otherwise does not have constitutional rights. Um, you, you can take a bright line view and say, the, it, you know, one foot in for one moment yeah. is enough. But the, the more traditional view probably has been that, well, look, one foot in is not enough. And then it gets into a question of line drawing for how long, how far in, et cetera. But if you keep the category of expedited removal Small, narrow enough, it kind of attaches itself reasonably closely to this, this idea that one foot in is not enough. If you expand it as they're proposing to do, you begin to make it very hard to have it be coextensive with the idea of no constitutional, constitutional protection. Rights. I mean, exactly. That's, that's exactly so. Exactly right. So um, all of this led to the Third Circuit's 2016 decision in Castro versus Department of Homeland Security, um, which I have previously been quite critical of and remain quite critical of, where the Third Circuit held um, that undocumented immigrants who are subject to expedited removal under the you know then in place definition of expedited removal um, are, are are effectively the same as arriving aliens stopped at the border and basically relying upon these cases from the 1950s these Supreme Court decisions um, Mazai um, Herisiadis versus Shaughnessy Knopf, mm. the, the big yeah, the big the famous, three yeah. um, for the what's called the entry fiction right that 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 even if you're physically present on US soil unless you have been properly admitted you are not lawfully present for purposes of American statutory and constitutional law right okay um the hugest, biggest, most glaring problem with um, the Third Circuit's decision is how poorly it deals with Boumediene, um, right? So, you know, whatever else we might say about the 1950s decisions and how they have been largely but not entirely overtaken by subsequent Supreme Court rulings, put that aside, right? We have a specific Supreme Court ruling from 2008 holding that non-citizens outside the U.S. with no connection to the U.S., who have never set foot on U.S. soil, um, to wit, the non-citizens attained at Guantanamo, are nevertheless protected by the suspension clause. Now, there are plenty of people who think Boumediene is wrong. I get that. But the Third Circuit is not in a position to say that. Right. So did so I, if, if one needed to distinguish Boumediene, yeah. it seems to me that about all you could really come up with, which might be salient here, which uh, that is a distinction that actually really might bear some weight, would be the idea that the detainees at Guantanamo have no ability to get out, mm -hmm. right? The United States requires that they right, remain something voluntary, there. The no, involuntary the versus involuntariness voluntary. and, and indefiniteness. So yep. like they're in our custody, the government controls them, and they, yep. can't, they can't step away. I think you could, I'm not saying it should bear the weight, but I think you could make a, a reasonable argument that the, the scenario is different in that respect. Uh, on the other hand, 
Um, there's also the fact that that is not actually U.S. territory, whereas this is, which cuts the other way. They and, seem to balance themselves. Well, and, uh, and the Supreme Court's extraterritoriality jurisprudence, Bobby, voluntariness usually cuts the other way, right? That is to say, a non-citizen who makes voluntary connections, to, who has substantial voluntary connections to the United States, regardless of their immigration status, usually has constitutional rights. So um, the Third Circuit did not quite go the tack you're suggesting. Rather, the Third Circuit said Boumediene is distinguishable because that was dealing with the extraterritorial application of the yeah, suspension that, clause. That, and there, there's a good example of a distinction that doesn't bear the weight it's supposed to bear. Indeed. It's a distinction, yes. Yes, yes. It's like, well done, Third Circuit. Yes, you have identified a distinction. <laughs> right. Unfortunately for but, you. Why does that one cut the way you think it does? Right. So, they, so they should have written it the way I suggested. Totally. Um, I still would disagree. But I mean, of reasons. course. Yeah. Um, so I, the Third Circuit decision I thought was, was you know, almost indefensible, at least on its own terms. Um, there was a concurring opinion written by, I believe, Judge Hardiman, right, who, at the, who, had, at, who would later be on the short list for um, right, Justice Kennedy's Supreme Court seat, um, where Judge Hardiman says, yeah, I think that's right, but I also think that even, you know, even if the suspension clause applies, you know, I think it only requires very, very little review, and these guys probably have it. And I want to come back to that, because I think that's going to be lingering. That right. The question, yeah, so if... People shouldn't assume that if you say, okay, so the Constitution applies, therefore, it dictates a very clear answer to the question of what processes do. Right. I mean, so, for example, in Boumediene, there were two dissents. Justice Scalia dissented on the first holding, that the suspension clause applies to Guantanamo at all. But Chief Justice Roberts' dissent is actually probably the more important dissent, where the chief says, you know, I'm not sure the suspension clause is violated by the review right. procedures created by the relevant statutes. All right, so fast forward to the Ninth Circuit. So the Ninth Circuit in March of this year, in this case involving a Sri Lankan, um, expressly disagreed with the Third Circuit and said, you know, um, whatever other whatever is true about how other constitutional provisions apply to undocumented immigrants subject to expedited removal, the suspension clause is you know, like core, right? The suspension clause is structural. The suspension clause, I mean, Sibumedian. Um, and so if it's good enough for non-citizens to take Guantanamo, surely it's good enough for non-citizens who have voluntarily and physically effectuated an entry of the United States. That's not to say they're going to win, but it's going to say that they're entitled to what Boumediene calls, right, a meaningful opportunity to contest the legality of their detention, and in this case, removal. And it's, is it possible that the uh, expedited asylum adjudication is itself uh, you so, know, sufficient? You know, because the Ninth Circuit held that the suspension clause applied, it had to reach that question. Yeah. Um, and, it's, and the panel said no. The panel considered that question and explained why they didn't think it was sufficient. Was it like, was it sort of like the Gitmo situation where they said, like, hey, you have to have a, a further opportunity to present evidence? Well, or it was just, it was, I mean, or? I mean the, the reality is like the, the ability to challenge a denial of asylum um, in an expedited removal case is so heavily circumscribed, Bobby, that they didn't even have to go that far, right? It wasn't, they didn't have to go that far into the weeds because the, the constraint on review is even more, um, how do I say, categorical, right? The, in the Guantanamo context, there are all these open questions yeah. about the combatant status review tribunals, about what could be argued to the CSRT versus on appeal of the D.C. Circuit, yeah. right? There weren't open questions here. There was 10 years of case law where nothing could be, ra- you know, almost nothing could be raised about whether the uh, denial of asylum was, was appropriate. Um, that said, anyway, so that was in March. Um, the circuit split, I think, was pretty obvious. Um, and the government, after seeking and receiving two extensions of time to file, filed a petition yesterday asking the Supreme Court um, to resolve the circuit split. Um, now, obviously, the government is endorsing the Third Circuit's position, but as an alternative, right, that even if the suspension clause applies or assuming without deciding that it applies, you know, just to hold your nose and just accept that the review available in this context is enough because it's more than nothing. Um, right. And, you so know, the process that is due is de minimis. Or, you know, I mean, that's, that's, and, and, that's not how they whatever it. Is, of course, it's, it, is, it is some process, and that's what we've got. Yep. And therefore, there's nothing to complain about from right. a procedural due process right. perspective. I mean, folks should read the petition for themselves. I tweeted it out yesterday. It's, you know, it's, uh, I think the docket number is 19-161. Um, the, you know, all I'll just say about this is I obviously have strong feelings about what the right answer is. It seems clear to me, Bobby, beyond peradventure, that this is a grant. Oh, yeah. No, you've got a circuit. You've got a clear split on an important topic. Where, you you where, can't where, have where, a Where the different. Ninth Circuit struck down, right, a statute on suspension clause grounds. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. Now, they may find some ways out of it yet. But in theory, this is one that's really ripe. And, I mean, so, you know, as, as you may recall, I, I wrote an op-ed shortly after Justice Kavanaugh was nominated, um, 
where I tried to identify what I thought were some were three of the most important distinctions between his jurisprudence and Justice Kennedy's. Yeah. And one of the three was my sense of his approach to the suspension clause. Yeah, he'll he'll cl- I think it's clear he'll have a narrower perspective than Kennedy did. You know, we see that through the Boumediene military detention lens. No reason to think it'd be too different here. Uh, do, do you think? Can you count the votes on this? Um, no, um, because it's not clear. I think there's no question that Justices Alito and Thomas um, will stick with what they said in Boumediene, which is to say the suspension clause doesn't apply, yeah. period. Um, I'm, you know, the chief and Kavanaugh might be inclined to go with a, you know, without deciding that the suspension clause applies, you know, we, we can, find it satisfying. We find by... it, you know, it's enough here. Um, and I have no idea where Gorsuch will be. Because, yeah, right. That's you know, what I was thinking. The, the sort of, if it were someone with a clear claim to constitutional protection, I would think he'd be in the, uh, you know, perhaps sympathetic to Justice Scalia's dissent in the Hamdi case about the suspension clause and the limits on detention. But Scalia himself said he was focused only on citizens. Right. But the citizen-non-citizen distinctions muddled here by the non-citizen's presence in the United States which pe- and, and muddled which, further by the Trump administration's expansion, right, of the cat- of the definition of folks who would be covered by this ruling. Yeah, that's right. That's so, right. so yeah, that that strikes me as a real problem for the litigation. Well, we'll see. But all this is just to say, I, I think this is a huge. I mean, I've been I've been saying for years, and no one's been listening that like this circuit. You know, first that the third circuit's eventually gonna someone's gonna disagree, right? And then once and the circuit disagreed, that there's that the that the government was gonna take this up to the Supreme Court, and here we are. And you know, I think the timing is such. That this will be granted this term, it'll be argued in like March, February or March. Yeah, this will be a June decision, and it's going to be another import. another major immigration decision, along with DACA, right, right in the middle of the 2020 election cycle. Oh my heavens! So um, right. big, you know. And, I mean, I, I I've thought for a while, right, that that so long as we're not sending new detainees to Guantanamo, the most important habeas questions um, that we have to deal with today. Are these are oh, undocumented immigrants? No question. Look, this this comes up at scale yes. and constantly. Yes, the Gitmo situation for all the oxygen it consumes, all is the for now a comes. legacy problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So huge petition. You know, uh, I, I'm, I'm I'll be interested to see that. that I think the the ACLU Immigrants Rights Project is a council for the respondents, so this will be you know well briefed and well litigated. But I think it's definitely going up and and with a bang. Wow. All right. Watch this space. Yes. Now, um, so obviously the topic of, of people entering the country in that way leads <laughs> us to the larger topic that then connects over to the El Paso shooting. Um, we teed this up a little bit at the front of the show. We, we know uh, from this manifesto that the killer uh, was was inspired to to do these things uh, out of hatred and, and racism, et cetera. And it's, and it's been framed by many, and I think properly, as an act of terrorism. Um, that in turn has led to a lot of discussion about, well, if it's an act of terrorism, if we agree on that, then why aren't we seeing formal terrorism charges? Or or are we going to see formal terrorism charges? And this gets into a question of how much is this a debate about the way we portray, th- portray things for rhetorical or narrative purposes versus what are the specific charges, what are the specific investigative authorities, what are the specific sentencing enhancements that are available? Those, those things don't have to all be the same. That is, you can talk about a situation as this is an act of terrorism. Uh, the charges may happen to be charges that aren't limited to terrorism scenarios or aren't found in the terrorism subchapter of Title 18. Uh, that There's nothing from a, from a legal perspective that says that there's a tension there. Nonetheless, there's clearly a lot of interest out there in wanting to see that there could be terrorism charges as such. So this leads to a bunch of conversation topics for us, Steve. Um, one is, you know, is it even true, as is often said, actually, let me back up. The first thing I think we should say is that this is not a debate about whether there are charges available, really serious charges available. It's not a question of whether appropriately heavy punishment can be pursued against people who do uh, what this uh, murderer did. Uh, there's no question that there is, for starters, an ample amount of state law, including uh, capital offenses that can and will be charged. And I believe in this case that the uh, the murderer is in, in state custody and it's going to be the DA who's bringing the charges initially. This isn't someone who's first and foremost uh, the problem of the federal government. It's the problem of the government of Texas and the government of Texas is uh, pursuing it as aggressively as you might expect. 
So it's not about that. So what is it about? I mean, why, why do you think that we see this larger uh, debate that these events spur about terrorism? Why aren't there charges of terrorism, et cetera? I, I think there are a couple of different things going on, right? So I think one of the things that's going on is, is the Trump effect, um, which is to say, you know, we've obviously had a problem of mass shootings before Trump was president, right? This is not new. Um, some of the worst mass shootings in American history, right, happened under President Obama's tenure as president. But there's something about the rhetoric, right? That, I mean, we ha- you have a president who has referred to, you know, the invasion of immigrants, um, right? You have a president who uses rhetoric that is not that dissimilar from the ones that this shooter used in his manifesto. Um, and so I think the very real concern is that you want your, your visceral reaction to the situation is you want the, you know, your elected leaders not just to condemn these acts of violence, but to call it out for what it is and to say, this is terrorism. I mean, I, you know, I, I am not usually one to praise Ted Cruz. Um, and I was, I was very taken with the statement he made that this is white nationalist terrorism. Yeah, um, he was he was really forthcoming and, and straightforward about this. Uh, the U.S. Attorney John Bash yep. very straightforward, yep. very quick to call this out yeah. as terrorism. DOJ in general yep. very quick to use the word terrorism. And, and they, so, we do not have a problem of DOJ being unwilling to no, call no, 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 no. these acts. No, terrorism. now I want to get to that in a second because I do think there's a there is I think a silver there is a, a, a slippery slope problem that I do want to talk about. But I think there's just this felt um, need for people to say this is more, you know, this isn't just mass murder, right? This is, you know, this is in the West Wing, right? When the, at the end of season one, when there's the assassination attempt, and eventually they find out that they weren't actually trying to kill the president, they were trying to kill Charlie. Spoiler alert. I know. Um, if you haven't watched season one of the West Wing, right? Um, there's a there's a scene early in season two where it's like, why does this feel so bad? It's like, because, you know, because they tried to lynch Charlie in front of all of us, right? Like, it's the, it is the racial undertone. It is the, you know, otherness undertone. It is the, you know, us versus them undertone. And so I think people reach for this language because they want to hear it condemned in the terms that it is as not just violence, but as politically motivated violence. Right. I think that it's very – I think there's a lot going on in what you're saying there. Part of it is there's obviously a larger debate about the president's relentless, divisive, and, and hate-filled rhetoric, the dog whistles, et cetera. And what is that doing to corrode the boundaries of what things are acceptable for people to say and for mar- for people on the margins of violence already, what it then encourages on, in marginal cases? Very, very serious issue. Um, but the other thing you put your finger on that I want to focus on is the importance of the utility of the label terrorism as a signaling device uh, that is in a, in a way, sort of a way of taking a category of violence amidst all the terrible categories of violence, because they are all terrible, um, and taking it and putting it in a particularly high shelf on the, on the um, my, my metaphor is not working very well, but putting it up there very high on the list of things that are right. especially inappropriate, especially delegitimizing it by, right, by labeling it terrorism. Right. It's, it's Hannah Arendt's argument for why genocide should be the only crime that, that, covers, that carries the death penalty. Right. Keep, you, you cabin the scope of a particular concept of delegitimizing labels so that they pack the most punch and they can be the most effective. Terrorism should not be thrown around willy-nilly. And that makes it really important to ask, you know, is the problem that that this shooter and others like him represent, is that worthy of the label terrorism? I think it's pretty easy to say that as a as a social phenomenon or as a category of criminality and, and national security problems, this is terrorism. This this yes. is, this is could, pretty easy, I think. Contra- contrasted, for example, with, with the shootings in Chicago over the weekend, right, where, you know, a number of people were killed, but where there was no sort of organized you know, cons- um, p- obvious political motive right behind what's going on. Pol- political violence at Pol- bottom. That's right. right. Now, can, so can I, then, yeah, but th- then the question is, does this have, does this expose any absence of laws? Do we need new statutes? If we're going to say this is terrorism, or do we need to back that up in certain ways? Well, question one is, well, are there not certain laws already? As, as we noted at the outset, there's, it's not a question of having no charges. We have lots of general purpose criminal laws at the state level, and no shortage of them at the federal level already that are relevant here, it's often said that there, the, nonetheless, there is no 
there's a lot of federal foreign terrorism statutes that are framed and labeled as such and therefore have that narrative impact. But we don't have that for domestic terrorism and we need it. And I think the first thing to emphasize and I want listeners to understand is that's not entirely accurate. We actually have statutes that are there in the terrorism subchapter of Title 18. Not all of the statutes there are international terrorism or foreign terrorism focused. Uh, Some of them are more general. So let me highlight two. Um, And then in highlighting them, I'll note that that there nonetheless is something to this argument in terms of describing the scope of federal law, whether that's a good or bad thing we'll then get into because there are are federalism concerns, et cetera. Um, On whether current terrorism statutes, that part of the U.S. Code, actually has anything domestically applicable, anytime it involves explosives, the answer is yes. Why, just this morning, Caesar Sayak, a domestic terrorist. Right, the, the guy, guy who, who, mailed, who mailed the bombs to all yeah, the Democrats and the reporters. Exactly. He got a 20-year sentence this morning. Um, he had been charged with an array of offenses, uh, expressly including uh, 18 U.S. Code, is it 2332A, the so-called and exceedingly mislabeled weapons of mass destruction statute. Uh, we've talked about this before. The, the so-called WMD statute is misleadingly labeled because it's not limited to what normal human beings understand WMD to refer to. Normal people hear WMD, and you assume that refers to nuclear, chemical, or biological weaponry, uh, or radiological perhaps, but not to ordinary explosives. The federal terrorism statute, known as the WMD statute, also covers ordinary explosive devices that are not chemical, biological, radiological, etc. It covers anything more or less that's explosive. Indeed, it even covers uh, large caliber uh, firearms if it's if it's uh, uh, more of a half a half inch or more, or maybe it's more than a half inch uh, diameter. I think for the uh, barrel, if I'm remembering this correctly. In any event, it's way more than WMDs, and so any act of domestic terrorism. Uh, or any act of domestic crime that's not necessarily political violence even, uh, that includes the use of an explosive device is very likely to fit within this framework, and it can be charged that way, and it is charged in domestic terrorism cases. So so we have that. Now, where you have uh, guns used that don't rise to that level, and not all guns will, then you might ask, well, is there anything else? Um, there are a lot of federal offenses. The the one place where you might nonetheless get one of the terrorism-specific statutes, uh, it's the older of the two material support statutes, 18 U.S. Code 2339A from 1994. This is really significantly different from talking about the younger of the two material support statutes from 96, 2339B. That's the more familiar one. That's that the old the younger one, 2339B, is the one where State Department designates foreign terrorist organizations, and the designation acts like an embargo where it becomes a crime to give really anything of value, uh, training, money, uh, equipment, yourself yourself as person subject to its direction or control. It's a, it's a, complete, uh, a complete banning in effect of the organization except for nominal ties, purely nominal ties. Um, that clearly applies only to foreign terrorist organizations. We're going to come back to that. 2339A is more like an aiding and abetting statute, but it it bans the provision of material support, all the things we just described, not to particular entities. uh, It could be to anybody. As long as it's knowing or intended, you know that or you intend that, your material support will aid the commission of a long list of predicate offenses, most of which won't fit a domestic terrorism scenario. But if you're trying to kill a federal officer, it will. Um, if, you're, if you're using explosives or they're going to use explosives, it will. So material support can actually be brought to bear even with the material, even with a domestic terrorism scenario to a limited extent. What, what it doesn't get you, what federal terrorism law does not get you for domestic terrorists that it does get you for the foreign terrorist is the 96-2339B material support concept where the government can pick specific groups designate them as terrorist organizations, and thereby prescribe any contact with them other than nominal membership. And so when people say we need a federal uh, domestic terrorism statute uh, that reaches the same, uh, encompasses the same scope of activity as all the federal uh, foreign terrorist statutes, uh, to a certain extent, I think they're, they're at least groping towards, if not explicitly thinking of that, 
And Steve, that raises a really serious question. Do we really, for all the horrors of domestic terrorism, do we really want to have a, a designated domestic terrorist organization list? No. Okay, to unpack that, why not? Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, President Trump tweeted a couple weeks ago, right, that he wanted to designate, like, like MS-13, he wanted to designate Antifa an organization of terror, right? I'm like, what the hell is that? Um, my concern is is the slippery slope piece of this, is that once you are putting, you know, the part of why we have this FTO list is because there are all these authorities that can be brought to bear against foreign entities and foreign organizations, at least in part, Bobby, because those entities and organizations are not protected by the Constitution. Um, and I just, I get really nervous about starting to create like a domestic organizations list. Now, we have some variants on that. So, you know, there's what, there's the Transnational Criminal Organization Authority, um, um, right, but it's but it's expressly not domestic. That, well, or at least it's expre- it's not only domestic, right? Like you can't a, a wholly domestic group can't be a TCO, right? right. Um, but I, I have a larger problem, and and you know I don't I don't know if this is a fair reaction. My reaction is like people are grasping for like p- more powerful definitions because of a perceived vacuum of political leadership, right? That like That's you know a fair point. Like we wouldn't be angsting, people wouldn't be angsting over the substantive scope of federal criminal law if they felt like there was a strong bully pulpit response. I mean, that's from the top. That's my gut. I mean, I don't know, you know, that's my, re- I mean, that's just me. And I'm one person and, and people can, should, and will disagree with me. But I just, you know, I feel like we're, it's misdirected anger and it's misdirected outrage because there's no question that, you know, when the perpetrators of these atrocities are caught alive, that they're either going to be, you know, executed or spend the rest of their life in jail or a, you know, mental facility. I so mean, you don't see the gap in coverage. What about on the front end? Yeah. So, so like clearly, federal, yeah. yeah, so both investigatively and preventive charging. So to, for, for yeah. folks who really have, you know, taken a long look over time, as both of us have, at yeah. the, the shape over time of federal terrorism law, um, right, we've, we have moved toward this, at least at the transnational level, toward this preventive model. This was like all the thing yeah. many of us were talking about back in 2001 through 2006 or so, yeah. where on the criminal prosecution front, the big story is finding all these tools, whether it's conspiracy charges, material support charges, the detention of material witnesses yeah. as, a, as a time, yeah. uh, sort of a time-saving measure. When you want to take someone off the streets because they are potentially dangerous, but you don't yet have the goods on them for the heftier charges, you know, actually linking them to particular plots or, or let alone completed acts. Yep. Material support of the designated terrorist organization variety, IEPA charges that are similar, material right. witnesses are all ways to in- intervene before a person gets to the point of a particular act. So now I'm going to get into trouble. So I think part of the reason why that's harder in this context is the Second Amendment, um, right? That that it would be easy enough if 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 you know if the Walmart shooter, right? instead of a shooter, had, had been assembling the materials to make a whole bunch of, of incendiary devices, of bombs, right? All of these authorities would have come into play. Um, there would have been all these investigative authorities. Once he'd actually bought some of these, you know, substances, he might have even been subject to criminal charges already, right? Could have been monitored, et cetera. What gets in the way is the, is the, is the very real fact that we are a country where it's legal to own assault rifles. But that shouldn't stop investigation. If you have a reason to think that, look, people are buying guns all the time. Most yeah. of them are not going to be of investigative interest, obviously. But for, for a person where there's, you know, for whatever reason, a tip, the FBI gets a tip like, hey, this guy is unhinged, might hurt somebody. Yeah. Um, and then they find out he's buying guns. They're definitely going to be investigated. So, so then the question... And well, know, not FBI necessarily, but that's the right. Texas authorities. Well, but so here's my... I mean, so then the question becomes, like, are there are adequate resources being directed toward that? Like, is the problem a lack of authorities or is the problem a lack of resources? Because those are not the same thing. Yeah, and, and related to resources, there's there's money and, and personnel. And then and there's also priority. pressure from the top down to allocate scarce resources on the investigative side towards certain types That's of right. cases. Um, on the investigative side, obviously, any conversation, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about um, the inability to track all gun sales as being highly pertinent mm-hmm. to this. So if you have a particularly dangerous person, the FBI or state authorities have been tipped about them, um, and there's there's a venue through which they're buying guns at gun sales or, or what have you. Or through the gun show loophole. Right, exactly, where there's no background checks in the front end, there's no... There's limited visibility. That's obviously potentially part of the problem. But notice that we're no longer talking about do we need federal crimes of terrorism, et cetera. But that's my point, right, that that I think the debate over the legal framework for prosecuting these offenses um, is a proxy for the debate we ought to be having, which is why don't we take the same, you know, pre 
episode approach to these mass episodes of domestic terrorism that we take to international terrorism? And, you know, is that why is there insufficient political leadership on that front? It, is there a case to be made? I want to sort of voice the libertarian yeah. objection here yeah. that we do not want to go down the road, that whether we should or should not have done so in the context of, of the Islamic State and al-Qaeda and, and Salafist jihadi extremist violence, that we don't want to go down the same road with, with domestic threats precisely because what that road leads to is intervention through preventive charging at a scale and in ways and through the use of confidential informants, mm -hmm. uh, which often leads to claims of entrapment, et cetera, that we don't want to do that on the domestic front. I think there are some who would make that argument mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. um, there are others who would say, no, that's exactly what we need to be doing. We need to be flooding the field with confidential informants in those communities of, of white supremacist, violent extremists, just as we would with, with Islamist extremists. Um, I think it's a really hard issue. I mean, there's no question there's a real problem here, and we need to devote more investigative resources to it. Um, it is true, though, that this comes with a cost, and, and it's going to be a cost that I think libertarians quite rightly are going to draw attention to. But as they should. As they should, but but we're so not we're we're not even close to being in a position where where we could do that, right? Because there's so little information, and so you know this is why I am a. I mean, I, I think I've mentioned before, Bobby. I have idiosyncratic views about the Second Amendment. Um, I, I actually am not 100% convinced that Heller is wrongly decided, even though I have a lot of problems with Justice Scalia's opinion for the majority in Heller. Okay, um, this is you know obviously the 2008 Supreme Court case that went back on the previous Supreme Court case and said, actually, the Second Amendment does protect the right individual self-defense. Right. It's not strictly pertinent to militia right. service. And I think we actually do have to have a conversation about understanding the sort of Second Amendment's right to individual private self-defense against the Supreme Court's rejection of a due process clause-based right to police assistance. Um, right in, for example, DeShaney and Castle Rock. Mm, that, that to me, this those idea are that like, if, if you don't have a right to the government's security at a certain operationalized level, then it follows that the Second Amendment is going to fill some of that gap. Um, I, I, as I said, it's idiosyncratic. Yeah. But but right. the, but the more important point for present purposes, though, is that still leaves a ton of room. Right, even without interfering with my right to to, to keep and bear a, a gun in the privacy of my own house, that leaves a ton of room for the government to regulate procedures. No, sure. Um, like, background like, checks, right? To ban high-capacity magazines, it, right? It, to, it, is, it, it should be commonplace in the debate that the Second Amendment doesn't protect your right to, have, to create and have a nuclear weapon. And so <laughs> having established the general principle yes. that there's an outer boundary here, it remains to be determined where to then draw a line between that yes. and a small pistol for personal self-defense that's in your home. And it's not hard to see where there's a lot more than just a nuke that the Constitution will allow the government to stop us from having without actually violating the Second Amendment. And, and you know, and, and, and the whole good, and, and the whole, like, you know, good guy with a gun response, I mean, look at Dayton. I what's, mean, what's the good guy with a gun response? That, you know, you don't want to limit fire, you don't want to limit gun possession and gun registration too much because then you'll prevent the people who could stop the shooter, right? And, and my response is, look at Dayton. I mean, in Dayton, the police were on the scene. They killed was, the shooter. 30 seconds? Like 35 seconds, and he still killed nine people, right? I mean, like, that's, you know, yes, it could have been much, much worse because he had one of those, like, hundred um, bullet magazine things. No, right. And in, like, no, it's ridiculous. Um, let me pull us back around to yeah. another aspect of the, do we need something to bring the legal framework closer to the foreign terrorist criminal uh, and investigative framework mm -hmm. for domestic terrorism? We've talked a little bit now. We've, we've, we've set forth a couple of things. One, there actually are some federal offenses. Two, this is, first and foremost, something that state law usually deals with. The case for pushing it further into the federal uh, context is mostly about whether there's enough value, on one hand, in uh, having the narrative impact and the signaling impact, the delegitimizing impact of having the federal government more heavily involved in such cases, which I think is a fair argument, uh, as against the encroachment that leads to on state law enforcement and the prerogatives of the state as the primary entity dealing with ordinary violent crime and the question of, well, this isn't ordinary violent crime anymore. We're now talking about something else. We need federal involvement. That, that federalism versus greater prioritization is an interesting debate. Um, what we haven't really talked about is the investigative authorities that we have made available. Um, and here I'm thinking of, of course, FISA Title I, yep. Section 702, and a variety of things that we now view as bread and butter intelligence collection tools so that we better understand, and then sometimes prosecute, sometimes not, 
in the context of foreign terrorism, uh, some I think could fairly ask, you know, don't we need something similar rather than just having the tools of domestic criminal law investigative authorities for domestic terrorism, at least of a certain, when it rises to some certain threshold? Um, a, it's not clear you constitutionally can. Right. I mean, that's, that whole, that's the whole, it was. Yeah. yeah, the whole bedrock uh, that undergirds so much of, of FISA and, and the surrounding authorities is is an assumption of foreign targets, over, certainly under 702, foreign targets outside the well, United and, States. And, and, and the existence of a foreign intelligence surveillance exception to the warrant clause, right, as opposed right. to a domestic intelligence surveillance exception, which the Supreme Court in the Keefe case expressly rejected. Exactly. So, so that's exactly where we wanted to go with this. So you do have various Fourth Amendment doctrinal concepts that explain how you have these non-criminal law enforcement uh, surveillance authorities in particular, content collection, monitoring the actual content of speech, never mind, you know, uh, metadata and that sort of thing. Um, The reason we don't have, alongside FISA, a statute we would lovingly call presumably DISA, and it would be the Domestic Intelligence Surveillance Act, is because Congress never made one after the Keith case said Congress would have to make one if it wants domestic intelligence electronic surveillance to be constitutional and to be permissible. Congress in the mid-70s basically looked at the aftermath of the Keith case and said, eh. the executive branch looked at the aftermath of the Keith case and said, eh, don't really need it. We now have Title III. All these scenarios will be law enforcement scenarios too, domestically. So we can, we can get by, it seems, with just the criminal law enforcement authorities. But all that said, that, that's always been contingent on a sense that the need wasn't great enough to push for having legislation like that. The Keith case didn't say you couldn't do it. The Keith case expressly invited Congress to pass what amounts to a Domestic Intelligence Surveillance Act that would be parallel to Title III, but instead of having probable cause to believe a crime is committed as the object of the inquiry, it could be probable cause, presumably by analogy to FISA, and I think fairly reading Keith, it would be probable cause to believe that the surveillance will yield information of domestic intelligence value. Uh, Who's to say if Keith would, would produce the same result if decided today? But it's always sort of laying about, you might say, like a loaded weapon, mm-hmm. this, this invitation to Congress to create such a regime. I suppose, especially if we had a few more such incidents in close succession, you might end up with some momentum towards uh, creating a DISA after all. But not, I've, not in I, this Congress. Not in this Congress. Oh, look, here's – and so having, I'm trying to tee this up, and now I'm going to knock it down. I think it's clear that the, the combination of libertarian and, and liberal left uh, interests ensure we're not going to go that route unless there's such a clear use case. And, and frankly, if this Congress can't show any interest in even going after the going dark issue, I don't see it turning around and saying, well, we're not going to deal with phone encryption, right. but we will create a domestic intelligence surveillance no. apparatus. No. I think it's just kind of taboo, and I don't see any momentum politically towards doing it. But when people talk about how we need to import a foreign terrorist-style approach to how we do surveillance and monitoring these yeah. uh, white supremacist violent groups or, or individuals, um, bear in mind, I think... When rubber meets the road, that's what they have to be talking about. Otherwise, I'm not sure what it is they're talking about other than just allocating resources. But I think, I mean, but I, but I want to go back to the allocating resources point because I think that's a big part of the story. Like, I think there's just, there's an assumption out there that, it, I think when we don't know, Bobby, about the resources, we assume it's an authority problem, right? That is to say that like, we assume the problem is a lack of authority because why else would the government not use its resources to prevent these horrific episodes? And I think there are probably other explanations. No, no question. Look, pre- prevention of crime is ideal and also the hardest thing. And so the idea that it's like the least bang for the buck, at least, you know, visibly, I mean, right, because you'll never know, right? Like a a successful prevention of a a, a mass shooting could save dozens and dozens of lives, but you won't know that versus solving the crime that took place two weeks ago. It changes the political calculus in terms of what sort of authorities you can persuade people are worth, what sort of sacrifices to privacy or otherwise are worth incurring. The further, you know, famously, the minority report problem, the further back on the spectrum of events leading up to a harmful act, you intervene, the more doubt there may be, the more uncertainty you're going to be having about whether the harmful act ever would have occurred. But I I, I just want to go back to where I started, which is I think a huge part of the problem here is the complete lack of leadership, Um, right? That, that, you know, uh, I don't recall the conversations after mass shootings being quite this... um, 
sort of pointed on the authority issue, right? Um, when you know you had, for example, the Sandy Hook shooting, right, during President Obama's tenure, right? That well, that it was well, more. But how would you like? What would be obviously there's gun control as yeah. a focal point there, but yeah. what would be the what would be the analogy to the El Paso situation where there is there's a sense that there there's politically motivated violence. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure how you draw a comparison. No, no, to I don't know. I, I don't. I, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that. But it's just like to, it's 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 the fact that it's politically motivated and that the sort of perceived cause of the political motivation refuses to acknowledge it as such. Right. That that like that's I think what's driving so many people to fo- focus on these sort of to me not tangential but sort of ultimately um, sort of second tier problems, right, versus the first tier problem, which is calling it what it is, making it a national priority to use the resources we already have and the authorities we already have to go after these groups and yeah. the people who are part of these groups. And of course, it, it casts a shadow downward when the, when the bully pulpit, when the president is not leading the charge in talking about the uh, ideological wellsprings of this type of violence and, and actually making that also consistent with his own rhetoric. That's those are the two fundamental problems. Right. He's not. He's not. Den- he he did. You know, let's be fair. Like he he denounced. Uh, he denounced. I think he had. I forget the phrase he exactly used, but he denounced racist violence, etc. He said he read the script and said said the right things. Two hours after. Two hours after he yeah, blamed just, the media. Okay, fine. We can we can obviously pick all day on the various ways in which he is just reading his script. But he did say whatever it is we just said he's supposed to be saying. The reason it doesn't resonate or carry the effect and leads us to say he's not leading from the pulpit is because his own rhetoric at his rallies is divisive on the same issues that are fueling some of these more extreme violent people like this murder. Um, One thing we should mention before we sign off on this topic and and, move away finally from it, uh, I'm sure some listeners or others who look into this will say, wait a minute, I, I did a quick search. There's a federal reference to domestic terrorism yep. in Title 18. Just just to be clear about this, yeah, in the definitions of 18 U.S. Code 2331, domestic terrorism is defined and defined in a normal way. Point one is that is not itself creating a federal crime. That's just a definitional section to which you might say, well, what's the point of the definitional section if it's not itself a federal crime? Well, it's used for lots of other purposes. For example, there are a handful of other crimes where the sentence gets enhanced if it involved domestic terrorism, that is, false statements uh, to government investigators, uh, bribery relating to port security, uh, just a few things. It's actually quite interesting how few statutes have domestic terrorism sentencing enhancements. If you're a member of Congress or a staffer who's sitting here listening to this thinking, there must be something we could do, if only to show we really care about this. Well, Maybe some federal domestic terrorism enhancements uh, it would fit the bill. Um, there's stuff about the scope of authority of magistrates to issue search warrants outside their own district under Rule 41 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure. There are, there are a few other items here and there. So it, it's doing some uh, interstitial work. I guess that's why it's there. Um, but that's not itself a crime, right? The, the category of domestic terrorism, not a federal offense. All right. Anything else we should say about this? There are so many things to say, and 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 I just you know it's it's I just don't. Uh, I am increasingly angry at those who enable the president's rhetoric because of the damage it is doing to every single future of our society. Fair and enough. you can you can be can, you you can you can think that the president is pursuing better policies than his predecessors. I don't you know that's I'm not sure that's a rational view, but but one could believe that, but. The notion that like his words don't matter, right? And the 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 idea that like we shouldn't get all worked up about what the president says, uh, you know, if you haven't read the Shooter's Manifesto from El Paso, you should go read it and then tell me that this has nothing to do. Well, no, what you should do is pick one of the more inflammatory uh, speeches that the president's given at a rally yeah. on immigration themes, invasion, etc. I mean, how about how about and, the how about the how about the Pensacola rally or the Florida rally, right? Where someone where he's talking about you know where someone in the crowd says shoot the immigrants and he says well you know I guess in you know I guess, ha 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 like that's that's right. something you could do in the panhandle. Right. No, many of us going back to when he was a candidate uh, before the election last time, uh, certainly I. 
I think I was especially alarmed myself about the winks and nods towards uh, the possibility of violence towards political opponents, towards others who are not political opponents, but who are the objects of your your political opposition, if you will, such as you were just describing. Mm-hmm. Um, the winking and nodding towards the, po- the propriety, the legitimacy of using violence in politics has always struck me as the foundational national security issue we almost never note because with many obvious exceptions, but nonetheless, as a general rule in American society, uh, in recent decades, we've had relatively little compared to lots of other places. We kind of take it for granted that you don't really have to worry too much about terrorism as such emerging out of our political disagreements domestically. Um, Yes, there's always been exceptions on the margins, but relatively speaking. And I've been worried since 2015 that this particular individual uh, winks and nods and encourages this. Um, we saw there's a really good post. I, th- I think uh, Quinta and Ben did uh, in the run up to the election talking about this as one of the, the really scary things to watch for. Like, does the rhetoric modulate or does it continue to wink and nod? If this election is close coming up, I'm really I mean, worried about that, where I, mean, I might go. That's the thing. I mean, we're, we're still I mean, we're still, you know, a year and three. We're still 15 months away from the election. You know, the, the president clearly has not been in any way mollified by any of this because he's faced no political consequences, because the members of his own party in Congress refuse to stand up to him on anything, including what should be the obviously, you know, unbecoming conduct and rhetoric of these speeches. And so as long as no one's pushing back against him besides the folks he's already identified as his enemies, this is going to get worse. It'll be interesting to see if if and when the next major rally where he touches on uh, these themes, whether he modulates his rhetoric. Um, I... I'll take the under. Yeah. Uh, he, he certainly doesn't have a track record for doing that. I think he might. But it, but then the question becomes like, all right, will that last beyond just the first rally? I can imagine the people around him will be, you know, pushing very hard to try to keep him on script on this topic, at least initially. Um, but as we said earlier, the attention of the public goes elsewhere. New crises arise. And, and then after a time, we might find him going back to the older rhetoric, at which point it'll be interesting to see, do people at that point still call him out? Will they still call him? Not, not as you say, not the people who right. are going to call him out, no, no. but people who haven't been calling him out, right. will they call him out right. then? Um, may, you know, maybe this, this, this brilliant trade war he's dragged us into is going to, you know, as it, as, it, as it messes with the economy. Um, well, you know, <laughs> you broach a new topic for sure there. Um, I do think that if the economy tanks, there, there's a, a period of time at which it's too late to really affect the outcome of the election. But if it tanks early enough, that's going to have probably more impact than any of the things we're talking about on whether it gets reelected, because that's kind of how the votes tend to go. Um, do we have any other national security law stuff to talk about? No. How about how about a palate cleansing turn towards frivolity? Um, if, if after all this discussion, you're not in the mood for frivolity or in any event, if you're sick of hearing us talk about baseball, no worries. We'll, we'll see you next week. Um, for those who are going to stick around, uh, can I put a smile on your face, Steve? Uh, you're wearing a Mets hat. I, I, am I see Mets other hat. Mets hats in this office. We need, we need to send out some more pictures of the, of the scene here. <laughs> there's, um, a lot, there's a lot of Mets paraphernalia. The, the Mets have inexplicably gone on quite a streak. I think it's, what, four in a row and, and 11, 10 out of their last 10 out of 11, 11, 16 and 6 since the all they're, they're They're actually you know playing great post-break ball. Now, this reminds me very much of, I think, last year. We were on the show. It was the early season. We're like, well, they came out of the box as they had the hot best, as they'd they ever had, been. They had the best start in franchise history yeah. last year. And it's a reminder, as everybody who follows baseball knows, is that when the when the end for your sample size is, is you know, in the single digits or the low teens, you know... Don't assume too much. Past performance doesn't guarantee future returns. The, the real question is, is it more like that or is it more like 2015, where at the trade deadline, the Mets were deeply mediocre, yeah. right? Or there was this whole question about whether they were going to sell, um, or there was the whole Wilmer Flores debacle for you know him finding out he was going to be traded and he wasn't traded. I, I remember vividly the Wednesday before the trade deadline, um, Jerry Familia blew a three-run ninth-inning lead at home against San Diego. And that was like the nadir of the Mets season. It was like, gosh, we're just yeah. we're just not going to be able to put it together. And then the Mets got as hot as they've been in my lifetime um, for, you know, five weeks and, and just turned around and crushed everybody, um, ran the Nationals down to win the division, right? Um, won the, you know, Knocked out the Dodgers, knocked off the Cubs, won the won the pennant, and then ran into the Royals. Right, but um, nonetheless, like a, a great season. That was great that was the second best like yeah. Mets fan experience of my life. So I would say that the case here is it's all about the pitching, right? So now, 
But it, but in 2015, I mean, the catalyst to that incredibly hot run was Yoena Cespedes. And we don't have a Cespedes. Well, so, so you got McNeil and Alfonso are, are playing great. Alonso. Did, did I say Alfonso? You did. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a Mets, that's a Mets history slip. I, and Gardo <laughs> Alfonso. <laughs> that's so funny. That's totally what that was. Um, so we've, we've got some okay batting, but the pitching's, you know, so Zach Wheeler, uh, he came out after the, what must have been a cause for soul searching, this this sort of like peddling of him. Is he is he a desirable commodity? Is he not? The deals don't go through. He comes out the box and pitches great the other day. And if Wheeler can live up to the expectations for him, yep. match that with DeGrom. DeGrom's been really hot. Syndergaard's been pitching well. I'm like, right, no, if those three, if, if all of a sudden our three frontline pitchers start pitching like our three frontline pitchers, then, yes, then yeah. this is sustainable because then even as the offense ebbs and flows, right. right, we'll win a lot of like three to one games. Well, and, and, you know, to this question of whether can your pitching quality really be that affected by these sorts of emotional swings? Hey, ask uh, Sanchez and the Astros about indeed, that. Indeed. Uh, that guy was having a terrible season, shows up in Houston. Throws a no-hitter. And, yeah, participates in a no-hitter. Hi, guys. It's ridiculous. So, uh, there is, I got to say, there is something about the – you know yeah, I love the yeah, Astros, The too. Astros, I think the and, Astros And their are... ability to, to – to assist pitchers. I don't know if it's Minute Maid Park. I don't think the splits actually no. suggest it's Minute Maid no, no. Park. I think it's, I think it's the club atmosphere. It's the, sp- the spree decor and the pitching coaches. Um, you look at what Verlander's done since he's been there. Um, Is he like leading the majors in wins? Uh, he is unbelievable. The the, the Strohs. I, I, we I thought we were talking about the Mets. I know I'm stealing a little bit because I'm can be a bit Ooh. of a homer on the Texas teams, and I don't want to talk about the Rangers. Uh, I think they have four of the top 15 ERAs <laughs> for starters in the American League. But, it's unbelievable. You know, but that, I mean, the, the the question is, how's that pitching going to hold up against the Yankees? Because that's this is clearly all setting up for an Astros Yankees which will ALCS. be which will be awesome. Be That'll be really really Who, Who's your pick for the National League? If you had to pick right now, who's coming? I, is it just the Dodgers? That's I so boring. But. I, you know, I, I mean the. The Dodgers are clearly, you know, heads and shoulders above the rest of the teams in the National League. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean they're going to win. No, right? it does not. Um, uh, do you think, did you notice the Cardinals sneaky, sneaky their yeah, way, yeah, yeah. just edging into first place for a while? It's not, they're not playing great, but, you know. Listen, they're two and a half behind the Cubs for first place. They're a half game back in the wild card. But here's the thing. The current co-wild card leaders in the National League are the Phillies and the Nationals. Um the Mets still have a lot of games yeah. against the Phillies and the Nationals. Like, Who's got the best pitching? It, 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 the Mets have. A, if the Mets' big three Mets, really dial it the in, the Mets have the best pitching. I mean, there's just like that's that that was supposed to be the formula all year. And, yeah, you know, it hadn't worked, and maybe maybe eighty eighty eight thousand year old Phil Regan has actually you know. How would you? How what about Cubs, Braves, Phillies pitching? Anybody else got comparable top three starters? I mean the. <sighs> No, I mean the the, I guess I mean the Braves. The Braves starters have been surprisingly good this yeah, year. Yeah, yeah, they're kind of quiet because they're not brand names. Yeah, but I I don't I don't think I don't think in a short series it holds up. Like I think if the Mets can find their way into the second wild card, and you've got like Degrom, you know, starting yeah. the wild card game, even if the wild card game is, I mean, that would be awesome. A Mets Phillies or Mets Nationals wild card game, that would be a lot <laughs> of fun. Um, um, yeah, but so you know we'll see. I just I, I'm getting ahead of myself because this is what Mets get. You know, this is what the Mets do. They 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 get your ho- they, they 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 get your hopes up and then they crush your dreams. <laughs> and on that note, I think we should wrap it up. But it's been fun to watch. Yeah, no, this is it's great. It's actually nice to be able to talk about them in the second half. I know, and, and it's not like the Giants are going to give us much to talk about once football season no. starts. And uh, we can and we can always root for the Astros in the end. I mean, I think, I, I think that's where this is going. I mean, so I think yeah. I think they they do seem to have. I mean, we we need to comment on the Grinky move. I mean, good yeah, heavens! I know. No, the Astros pitching that was a boss move at the last minute. To the be Astros like, pitching that rotation, man, and, and the and the and the bats are just as good. I know their yeah. lineup. When you look at it, it's unbelievable. Whereas the Yankees, it's not the pitching; it's just they're going to score ten runs a game, right? You know That's, what? I, w- I wish we'd gone up to see a Round Rock Express game, just you know, short drive up yeah. from right where we're sitting here, yeah. while Carlos Correa was was yeah. down at AAA. Um, there were all these great stories. It's you learn a little bit about a player when you when there's a real star who ends up at the AAA doing a rehab assignment, yeah. and a lot of times you don't really hear much about it. You know, maybe they play well, they don't, but there's no stories about it. Correa was apparently just such a charming, engaged guy that the newspaper, the sports page, was filled every day with like, oh, this latest story about, you know, Craig taking care of the other, like the more career minor league type guys. Um, 
there's a lot of very likable Astros, which is part of the fun with them. I will say that I am, um, I think it was three or four years ago that the Round Rock Express went from being the Rangers AAA affiliate yeah. to being the Astros AAA affiliate. That's a, that's, that is a, <laughs> that is a plus move. <laughs> that's a plus move for people in the Austin Because the, the Round Rock Express, I mean, that's the only minor league team, even within a couple hours drive of here. Yeah, you can get to San Antonio easy. Uh, yeah. who's, who's in San Antonio? I actually don't know the missions currently. Uh, the San Antonio missions, when I was a kid, that was the San Antonio Dodgers. Mm. Um, but they're and, not and the Dodgers. And Fernand, when I was a kid, Fernando Valenzuela came up through there, oh. and it was really cool. Um, Wait, I'm looking this up. Who are the San Antonio um, the San Antonio Missions? Um, well, yes, uh, the they're the AAA affiliate of the Brewers. Ah, huh. yeah, you know. So, nah. well, let me say, nah. as as a San Antonian, it miffs me so much. You get, you hear like nothing about San Antonio, yeah. you know, in Austin, yeah. even though it's so close. Nah. I get it, but you, come on. All right, uh, before I start talking about the Spurs, I was about to say, let's <laughs> let our friends go. Let's let them go. This is going to end badly because then <laughs> so, I'm going to say badly. Oh, wait. Yeah. Okay, I can't resist because it came up. <laughs> let me just say that all these people – so I saw some uh, some estimation that the Spurs wouldn't even be in the playoffs next oh, year. gosh. Give me a break. When are people going to stop doing this every year? It's so, so, so typical. So, so the, sort of the rules for the podcast are – They're going to be better are, than like, last year. The things, that get, the things that get me riled up, colon – Everything. Everything. Period. This will get Bobby riled up. Colin, the Spurs. Disrespecting the Spurs. Hating on the Spurs. God, it just makes me so frustrated. Is that our podcast title? Don't disrespect the Spurs? Uh, I don't know. Let's think about that. We didn't come up with a funny one. It's not a very funny It's not a very funny episode. Um, That could be our episode title. This is not a funny episode. Let's think about it. But let's spare our listeners the rest because I got to go. You did not use my title last week. I know. <laughs> I always I was, defer. I was shocked to discover when I was like, wait, that's not the title we agreed on. It was a good one. All right. Anyway, he's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, we'll be back next week. Two weeks till classes. Oof. Ugh. Stay safe out there. Adios.